Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Joseph Heath, a professor in the Department of Philosophy and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. He's the author of several books, including his most recent, Cooperation and Social Justice, which comprises six essays on the interrelationship between our conceptions of justice and the institutions that comprise modern society. Cooperation in Social Justice has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize for the best public policy book by a Canadian. The prize will be awarded on May 18th. Joseph, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book and its success. Oh, thanks, Sean, and thanks for having me. Let's start with the book's key thesis. Uh, Listeners will be familiar with the idea that our institutions at some level reflect our societal values. You make the case that actually our institutions themselves come to influence the expression of those values in cooperative efforts, including public policy. What's the interplay between our institutional arrangements and the pursuit of social justice? How does it manifest itself in some circumstances as a source of tension? Right. So part of the the idea is to think about justice in a somewhat less idealized way than than we sometimes do. I I mean, so I'm in a department of philosophy sometimes called the Department of Data-Free Speculation, right, where we sort of just sort of wax philosophically about like what an ideal society would look like and so on. I mean, that gets pretty boring after a while, in part because it's not difficult to imagine an ideal society, and it doesn't really require a PhD to think about ways in which people could sort of behave themselves better. Where, Where it gets hard and where it gets interesting then is when you realize that there are constraints that we're subject to. You know, so like in the case of of, you know, s- social institutions, you know, there's the, the simple fact that people are self-interested. And so people, people are motivated by moral commitments, but, you know, they're also motivated by their self-interest in a really complex way that's actually really hard to understand and to model. But it means that, you know, we can't just sort of prescribe moral solutions to social problems and expect everyone to fall in line. We have to recognize that there's going to be some sort of, you know, like we have to worry also about the about you know incentives and the the tendency of people to sort of deviate from moral moral ideals and stuff like that. So that's where it gets really interesting is when you start thinking about ideals of justice, but subject to the constraints that we're subject to, uh, the the constraints of human uh, of human motivation and of, of sort of human knowledge and stuff like that. And so you know institutions are are you know in a sense they they realize ideals of justice. But, but they also sort of represent the central constraints that we're subject to when we think about questions of justice, right? because justice needs to be institutionalized. It's common these days for social activists to talk about, quote, systemic barriers to equality or social justice or whatever their goal. 
what's the difference, if any, in your mind, between how they talk about systemic issues and your own thinking about these institutional arrangements? I think I think the biggest difference is that often, well, there there isn't necessarily a difference, but but what what I often see when people talk about you know systemic injustice or systemic racism stuff like that is that they're actually sort of not thinking about it. Well, systemically, they're treating the institutions as a bit of a black box. What people are often just doing is pointing to outcomes, right? And so, I mean, this is something that's happened in the U.S. discourse, in particular around race relations, where there's been a shift away from thinking about process and a focus more on just brute outcomes. Uh, and, it, it, you know, there's various reasons why that's happened, but it, it, it has one advantage, which is that if you want to diagnose structural injustice, you know, it, it could be, if you can point to disparities in the outcome of some kind of institution or process, then you can say, ta-da, there's structural injustice. So it tends to be a, like a very sort of consequentialist way of thinking about, about justice. The problem with that is that there's often like, I mean, in some cases, like just a lack of interest in actually sort of popping the lid or, you know, opening the hood and trying to figure out how the institution is generating those kinds of injustices. Uh, and and so, you know, often you get this shift where people say, oh, I'm not talking about sort of individual discrimination. I'm just talking about structural discrimination. And you say, okay, fine. So, the, you know, so there's structural discrimination, right? But where does it come from? And often the answer is just, oh, well, there must be some kind of individual discrimination going on there, right? So you get this kind of bouncing back and forth between this individualistic way of thinking about it and then this very broad outcome-based way of thinking about it. What's missing there is actually the, the thing that I'm interested in, which is what is it about the structures, the institutions, the systems that are systematically generating these disparities in outcome? And I mean, I mean, that's an interesting conversation, but I mean, part of the reason why people don't want to pop the lid or the hood or whatever of the metaphors on institutions is that when you do start looking at what the mechanisms are that generate the certain kinds of disparities, it often, you have to be sort of morally flexible or open-minded in the sense that what, what looks like an objectionable disparity might turn out to be not objectionable once you discover what the systemic mechanism that's actually generating it, or it might turn out to be, right? I mean, typically what you find is that it's like really mixed, you know? So like, if you take a typical example, like, um, so Ibram Kendi in his, uh, like, How to Be an Anti-Racist book, which is sort of hugely influential, you know, is, you know, relentlessly focused just on outcomes as a way of establishing systemic racism. He gives the example of differences in home ownership rates between white and black Americans, uh, but, but doesn't, you know, say anything about what could be generating that. So, but if you pop the hood on that and you look and see, well, what are some of the factors? What you discover is, is that, for example, the average age of black Americans is 10 years younger than the average age of white Americans. So a certain fraction of, of the difference in outcome is going to be a product of this, you know, completely benign fact about the population groups, which is that black Americans on average are significantly younger than, than white Americans. Now, of course, that's not going to be the whole story, but that's going to be a, a part of the story. And so you have to be willing to engage in it and to recognize that what looks like an injustice or, or like a, a objectionable disparity, you know, might turn out to be, you know, like at least at very least more complicated. What is the consequence then of reframing how we think about the influence of institutional forces in impeding progress on certain social justice goals? How might it reconceptualize the pursuit of such goals by placing a greater emphasis on institutional reform as a key precondition for progress? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that sometimes the constraints that arise from the you know, contact with the, with the real world of our ideals is seen as being just sort of like a source of contamination. That has to be that has to be resisted, 
And so in part, you know, so we have a moral ideal and then we try to implement it and it works out really badly. And so then someone like, you know, comes along and points out and says, oh, well, you know, the reason it's not working is because look at how people are acting. They're acting in these ways that really defeat the purpose or that are, you know, like they're ignoring the rules and pursuing their self-interest and so on. The, the, there's a temptation to have a kind of moralizing response and just to say, oh, well, people shouldn't act that way, you know, and like as though that's the end of the discussion, right? And, and in a sense, that's hard to argue with because, of course, it's true, right? Like people shouldn't act that way. Um, but, you know, but, but if it's kind of persistent, like people act that way and, you know, we've been trying for, say, 100 years to fix some problem and people keep acting in a way that defeats a, a kind of directly moralizing response to it. Then we have to start thinking more creatively about ways, you know, to get around the fact that people act that way, right? So, I mean, like, I have a, I have a chapter in, in the book on, on border control and immigration. And, you know, I think that when we, I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan and proponent of Canadian multiculturalism, but I'm also someone who worries about it a lot because I worry about the strains that high levels of immigration put upon society. Now, there's a temptation to look at a lot of that. And, and so, I mean, those strains and those frustrations find expression in all kinds of different ways. But one of the ways that they find expression is in, in the form of straightforward racism and xenophobia. Now, I think an unproductive way of responding to that is just to say, oh, well, that's irrelevant because people shouldn't be racist. Which, of course, is true, right? But the fact is, like, it's a pretty, like, solid 15% of the population consistently over time is racist. And so one might also consider treating that as a kind of sociological fact about the society that a certain, you know, relatively small but not tiny percentage of the population is going to be pretty xenophobic and is going to feel really threatened. And then you might want to think about that as a kind of management problem, right? So how, like, what do you do to make it so that that doesn't, you know, contaminate public discourse so that it doesn't generate, you know, violence or that it doesn't generate the rise of an extreme right-wing party. And so in other words, you might think of it as a kind of like a constraint on how we pursue immigration policy, not something that we just kind of wish away. And we'll come to the essay on accommodation and pluralism because it's, it's chock full of insights. But before we get there, I want to take up an institution that you're well familiar with, the, the university, the modern university. You spent a lot of time on campus and have written about the cultural and ideological trends within these institutions, including the increasing tendency for HR departments to act, in your words, as, quote, important vectors for illiberalism. <laughs> when these types of political forces grab hold of an institution, what can be done to repel them? How, in other words, Joseph, can universities protect themselves from these illiberal trends? Well, uh, the thing I worry about the most in Canada, the universities, is is what I refer to as cognitive capture by sort of American public discourse in general. And I mean, I, I actually spend a fair bit of time in the United States as well as in, in Canada. And I, I think Canadians just consistently underestimate how different the United States is from Canada. And so there's a, a huge tendency uh, to just imagine that anything going on in the United States must also be going on in Canada. And that whatever kinds of problems Americans have must also be problems in Canada, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I've argued... In, in sort of various public work that, for example, like the way Americans think about race uh, is extremely unhelpful in a Canadian context, uh, simply because, I mean, the, the, the whole history and situation in the United States is so different. But you've also got like 90% of the, of the Black American population have, have been in the country from like, you know, like 
for five, six, seven, eight, nine generations, right? Like it's a so I've argued, for example, the situation with with race in America is actually more similar to the situation with French Canadians and with Quebec in Canada, where you're dealing with a national group that was sort of involuntarily incorporated into the country. You look at the situation of Black Canadians; it's radically different from that, right? I mean, there's a small population of 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 of, of you know African Canadians who are descendants of slavery, but the overwhelming majority, ninety percent, are first and second generation immigrants, and that gives them a lot more in common with, you know, people from India, people from China and so forth, right? So so we have a radically different situation in Canada. And yet we we often are trying, are we just we're mindlessly adopting cultural sort of templates and uh, from the United States. Oh, I, I was I was tempted to say we're we're adopting solutions, but of course we're not even adopting solutions because because the United States, it's not as though that the American language of social justice has been successful at at pacifying racial conflict in America. I mean it, it's if anything, it's a recipe per, for perpetuating racial conflict. And yet people are sort of mindlessly adopting it, right? And so, you know, like, I mean, so there's been the same kind of creep of, of this sort of DEI thinking and so forth within Canadian universities uh, as, as you've had in the United States. I think it's, it's, it's perplexing in Canada for a, a kind of a different reason. Like, the, the United States has got its own little argument going on, Right. My basic concern within an Acadian context is it's just inappropriate to the situation of Canadians, right? And so, for example, like you see within within that discourse, uh, an enormous privileging of the concerns of Black Canadians. And I, you know, at, at given the pluralism that you see at universities like University of Toronto, you can see, for example, like, you know, Muslims from Pakistan and so on becoming quite irritated by the fact that many of these approaches and policies are kind of arbitrarily privileging the interests of one class of immigrants over other other immigrants and other concerns that often seem just as pressing, if not more pressing. So I think, you know, Canadians, I mean, what's going on in the universities in Canada is very different from what's going on in the United States. And but one of the one of the trends you see uh, that I think is the most is just this sort of failure to think about the specificities of the Canadian context. The, the book's first essay talks about the issue of scale. It seems to me that one of the challenges of dealing with seemingly intractable problems like poverty or homelessness or whatever is that most effective interventions aren't really scalable. They depend on contingent circumstances, including sometimes even the role of particular individuals. How should we think of the question of scale when it comes to cooperative solutions? What are some of the inherent limits on scale? Yeah, so the the, the first chapter is called on the scalability of cooperative structures. And it's basically I mean, I mean, he references sort of old debates about the feasibility of socialism, uh, because most people, I think, are sort of intuitive socialists. That is, that that our everyday intuitions are that the way in which we should cooperate with one another is that everyone should basically pitch in and do their part, and that there should be a kind of only limited role for self-interest and competition. And so then if you go out into the world and you see how capitalism functions, it seems to be quite different from that, right? So there's a huge role for competition and self-interest. And so people intuitively, morally have difficulty reconciling themselves with the marketplace and its demands. So a standard argument then for the arrangement that we have is to say that the sort of the, the model where everyone just kind of pitches it and does their part, it works well at a small scale. So within a, you know, with a group of roommates or people on a camping trip, stuff like that amongst friends, it may work out relatively well. But once you start adding more people, then increasingly antisocial motivations become more prominent and therefore you have to reorganize things. And that reorganization then also requires a change in how we think about justice between individuals. Um, so the, the biggest 
change that occurs as one increases scale is that we have to rely more on on extrinsic or external motivation rather than internal motivation. And that's a very sort of neutral philosophical way of saying that institutions have to become more coercive. Right? So that when you have face-to-face -face interactions amongst people and people who are interacting with one another repeatedly, you could rely very heavily on people's internalized moral constraint, sense of responsibility, and so forth to make sure that they don't act in an antisocial way. Whereas once relationships between individuals become more distant, right, so once I start interacting with strangers rather than people that I repeatedly interact with, right, then people start to act in a more self-interested fashion. And therefore, in order to maintain cooperation, you have to introduce more extrinsic motivation, right? There have to be more punishments. I mean, you can see this just by the way people behave, you know, like in person versus once they get into a car, right? Yeah. I mean, like... Think about how people manage a lineup at a movie theater where it's like face-to-face -face interaction versus how we manage like a merge like on the QEW or something like that, right? That is like a highway merge. People acting like a, you know, cutting line and acting this completely antisocial way that you would never do that face-to-face, -face, right? Because you would get confronted by the other people there. So, you know, you only have to, I mean, that's just a good illustration of how uh, introducing social distance between people brings out more uh, self-interested behavior. And therefore, you need to have traffic police enforcing laws and stuff like that. But, it, you know, so that, that point generalizes. Like, institutions become more coercive, right? So then you, when you think about morality and justice and what you can demand of people, then it changes the, the I mean, the, the way you think about it in, in important ways. Because when you think about the small face-to-face -face interactions, you can put pretty onerous demands on people because you're not actually going to be enforcing them. You're not going to be punishing people. You're just going to be, you know, having conversations and saying, I'm very disappointed in you, right? But once you get larger scale institutions where you start introducing formal punishment systems, then you start having to think more carefully about, you know, what are you willing to actually punish people for doing? And, you know, the bar obviously has to be raised somewhat, right? And therefore, the strictness of the moral obligations necessarily decline as we start associating punishments with them. And so that's part of what I want to capture the book is the way that, that it goes in two directions, right? It's not just that, you know, like the way we think about justice has to be sort of, you know, that we have to think up institutions to, to implement our ideals. So we also have to adjust those ideals in the light of how we implement them. Yeah, that's a great insight. I want to move to your discussion of capitalism, if that's okay. As a young person, I read Irving Kristol's book, Two Cheers for Capitalism, in which he essentially argues that capitalism is a framework for organizing economic exchange, but it lacks an ethos or even an institutional character, you, you disagree. You make the case that the market economy is itself a large-scale institution. Uh, what do you mean, and what are the implications of thinking about the economy as an institution rather than a series of decentralized transactions? Right. But, yeah, that was actually something that, I mean, one of the reasons to write is that you clarify your own thoughts. And, and one of the things that I sort of clarified for myself, you know, in a helpful way as I was writing the, those chapters, was that, um, you know, what, what Adam Smith says about capitalism was, I, I guess, I think the fundamental insight, which is that it's a way of institutionalizing a division of labor. Like, that's what's important about it. And the reason it makes us richer is that the division of labor allows for specialization. Uh, and, um, and as a result, you can spend, you know, I can spend my day doing philosophy while other people do things like make iPads and stuff like that, right? And so I get the benefits of all that specialization. But the fact that I'm able to spend my day doing philosophy requires that, you know, thousands, perhaps millions of other people 
spend their days growing wheat and grinding it into flour and, you know, like, you know, making like polyester from my shirt or whatever, like everybody, you know, all of the other necessities of life are being provided to me by, by other people. And the right way to think about that, Adam Smith suggested, is basically as one big giant system of cooperation. So it shouldn't be thought of as like a set of bilateral exchanges. So people sometimes compare, uh, like the philosopher Robert Nozick famously compared a market economy to like a marriage market and said, you know, like people get married, it's like people interacting with one another and we don't worry about inequality in the outcome of the marriage market. So why should we worry about inequality in the outcome of the capitalist market? But the difference is that the marriage market is just two individuals pairing up, right? But they're not all dependent upon each other. And so even if nobody else got married, two people could still get married, right? So whereas the market is, is not like that, right? In order for you to do interviews and me to do philosophy, you know, the two of us just can't get together in a post-civilizational universe and do, do a podcast, right? There have to be millions of other people busy making food and, and, and you know, heating our houses and running the internet and stuff like that. Right? So, so think of it as being a gigantic system of cooperation. And then I think that that's the, so the correct way of thinking about, about capitalism. And, and then, of course, the immediate question poses itself. Well, if it's a big system of cooperation, why is there all this competition? Like, why are we just cooperating with each other? And then that's when it gets interesting. So that's when you pop the hood and say, well, why is it that we don't just cooperate with each other? I mean, that's the basic socialist idea is if it's a system of cooperation, we should just be cooperating. Right. So then you have to get into a complicated explanation to say why you're not doing it that way. Another of the collection's essays defends the case for stigmatization. Why do you think stigma can be a useful social tool? And why do you think it's fallen a bit out of favor? Or maybe to put it more specifically, why do you think it's come to be selectively applied? That, that paper fault stems from an interest that I have in, in self-control and self-controlled failure. In part because I think that it's, it's an enormously, it's actually one of the deepest cleavages between left and right, uh, which is that, that, that people on the right want to explain a huge amount of sort of whatever, like social dysfunction or unhappiness or inequality as a consequence of self-control failure, right? So, and, and in part because of that, there's an impulse on the left to just deny that that's what causes it, right? So just to, to deny the phenomenon. And so if you look at an issue like, say, homelessness, right? so someone from the political right typically will look at that and they'll say, oh, well, underlying that is basically like drug addiction or something like that, like some form of self-control failure or, you know, like, you know, economic inequality. They say, well, people are dropping out of school, right? Having kids when they're 15 years old, right? So that, you know, those are all forms of self-control failure. So the right likes to say that if you scratch the surface of any particular kind of social inequality, what you'll find is kind of self-inflicted misery. So I think that often the left tries to respond to that by just refusing to treat it in those terms and to say, no, these are distributive justice issues. Look at how expensive houses are. That's why there's homelessness, right? Or, you know, look at the incentives that people face in the workplace. That's why they drive out. Of, that's why they drop out of school and so on. So there's a bit of a dialogue of the death there. And, and so I think that the left sometimes, um, therefore, winds up just being in denial about fairly obvious phenomena, which is that people do sort of ruin their lives in lots of different ways. And it's not difficult to elicit. I mean, everybody knows this, right? Like, so if I were to come up with a proposal, this is something Milton Friedman once suggested. He said, you know, why do we pay, why do we make welfare payments once a month, right? Why don't we just roll it into the tax system 
and you could just get like a big, you know, like a big payment in April, like along with your tax fund refund, you could just get your welfare for the year, right? So once a year payments of welfare, uh, and you know, you say, oh, well, what would be wrong with that? Well, everybody knows what would be wrong with that, which is that a huge number of people would uh, would spend all the money <laughs> to far too quickly, and come January, are going to be completely out of money. So there's a paternalistic aspect to the fact that we we send out welfare checks once a week. In that you know, people are not very good at managing lump sums of money. All right, so so that's that's the the background concern is about is about self control failure, and what I find is that in in modern societies, like as we get better at sort of running social social services and social safety net, a lot of the misery that used to be due to kind of like objective circumstances and, uh, you know, like, you know, with recessions and all this sort of, uh, you know, unexpected economic events that are completely outside of people's control. Well, increasingly, we have insurance systems that protect people from that. And so if you look at the amount of misery and inequality that remains in society, an increasing fraction of it is actually caused by self-defeating behavior. Uh, and self-control failure. So I think that the left needs to find a way of talking about that problem, right? And and figuring out how to adopt a progressive stance with respect to that problem, you know, rather than than implausibly denying its existence. So the, the 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 right has adopted a highly moralizing and individualistic way of talking about it, namely uh, in terms of personal responsibility. And so he thinks that the appropriate response to self-control failure is to make sure that people basically bear the full costs of their bad choices. And that, I think, in many circumstances, winds up being in, inhumane because they, the, the very fact that people are experiencing the self-control failure means that they're not going to respond to these kinds of incentives that are being imposed upon them. So it winds up you know, just kind of compounding their difficulties. So I think we need to find a more humane way and progressive way of thinking about self-control failure so that we can acknowledge that it's actually like a huge source of misery in our society. And so that's what led me to talk about it. And the question is that the, and again, I, I, so there, one of the other dogmas that you find on the left is that, so one of them is just the dial that self-control failure occurs. And then the second is a sort of general hostility to, to stigma in, in instances where individuals do suffer from self-control failure. And because it's complicated, but the, the, you know, stigma is seen as being basically a kind of punishment and it's taken to be inappropriate to punish people for self-control failure. And my general concern with that is I think that it just kind of hangs people out to dry in many circumstances because it, it winds up putting the Otis, I mean, in a sense, it, in its own way, it compounds the difficulty because it winds up putting the Otis entirely on you to then overcome your self-control failure, right? By eliminating some of the social structure and the consequences of, the, of, of failures of self-control. And so I sort of want to, I mean, want to rehabilitate stigma to a certain extent uh, in order to argue that it does actually, you know, in many cases, serve a useful social function. Um, you know, so like there's a good reason that we should stigmatize, you know, like being a junkie, you know, and it's not because it is not like a, in part because it's addictive, right? And that is that you're not just condemning somebody else's lifestyle, like, you know, like a lar very large fraction of people who are, you know, addicted to opioids themselves want to quit. Right? So it's not like it's a direct expression of their considered view of the good life. Right? And so like there isn't like, so the, the basic objection of stigmatizing it, it isn't there. So then the real question is just like, what are the uh, effects then of stigmatization? Uh, you know, is it just adding insult to injury or does it actually serve a useful function in sort of bootstrapping people's efforts at self-control? 
Uh, and I think we need to take the, that, that possibility very, more, more seriously. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You also take up questions of pluralism and accommodation in the book, as, as we mentioned earlier. I want to ask you, Joseph, as countries like Canada become more heterogeneous and diverse, including with respect to conceptions of social justice or the common good or whatever, is there a risk that cooperation becomes harder? How will multicultural societies work through these issues? So there's a chapter on, on, on immigration where I guess I... I use it as an opportunity to express certain kinds of anxieties. That is, in the, certainly in the, in the philosophical literature that I deal with, and you know, when I argue with my, with my colleagues at the University of Toronto, the general view is that because of the enormous economic inequalities between you know, rich world, poor world, and Canada and underdeveloped countries, that we have an obligation to sort of you know, maximize our intake of immigrants. And, you know, which... Well, I guess, yeah, but, but the, the interesting question then becomes, I guess, subject to what constraints? And so I think I, I pulled out some statistics that there are currently, you know, the, something like just shy of a billion people in the world today would like to immigrate to another country. And of those people who want to move to another country, something like 80 million identify Canada as their first choice of country to immigrate to. So there's about 80 million people out there who want to move to Canada. I mean, I don't like right away. I don't know. Like that's, but you know, it's, it's, so that's twice the population of the country at least. Right. So th there's a sense in which, you know, the view can't be, oh, well, let's like let in 80 million people right away. Right. So th th there is, there has to be some, something that constrains it. And then the question is how we should think about, about those constraints. So what I argue in that chapter is that in the background is a kind of unhelpful view that tends to think of the wealth of our nation, like as, as something like a big pile of money or something like that, or a big pile of resources that we're sitting on. And that, so that's what makes Canada wealthy. And so that's sort of not the view amongst economists, right? So the first thing I do is just a little bit of an explanation about, you know, how, what it is that makes wealthy countries wealthy. Because for the most part, you know, there's 80 million people that want to come to Canada. Like the fact that Canada is a wealthy country has a huge amount to do with it. Um, so then the question is like, well, how does that work then? Like, how do they come to share that wealth? And where does that wealth even come from in the first place? And the way most economists think about this now is that what makes countries wealthy, or conversely, what keeps them poor, is basically the quality of their institutions. And so that wealthy countries have an extremely effective system of cooperation, such as a market economy, but they also have like, you know, courts that are essentially, uh, you know, non-corrupt, and therefore, contracts that can be enforced and property rights that can be enforced. And they have a government that's relatively non-corrupt. So you can start a business without having to worry about predatory officials uh, extorting all your money from you. And you also have, for example, a, a currency that's relatively stable and a banking system that's relatively stable. 
so that you don't feel like you need to spend your whole paycheck, but that if you save it, a couple of years later, you can go and get your money out and spend it, right? And so that's what generates investment is the willingness to save rather than spend everything now. So, so there's like this huge range of institutions that, that make everything work nicely in such a way that we can become and remain a wealthy society, primarily by, by having a very advanced division of labor. And so when we think about the question, so there's, and there's no question that Canada could have more people in it. Uh, but the, the reason people are coming is in part because they want to be integrated into this system of cooperation. And so the, the right way to be thinking about, about immigration is in terms of expanding the system of cooperation. And so this is where it connects up to the stuff I'm saying about scalability, right? What we're really trying to do is scale up Canada. And then the question is, well, what are the constraints on scaling up Canada? And we're sort of exploring those constraints, right? So the number of immigrants that are coming to the country is, has, has gone up from 200 to 300 to now, I, you know, it looks like 500,000 a year, right? I mean, all of this is a little bit of an experiment to see how rapidly one can scale up a system of cooperation such as the one that we enjoy as Canadians. And so one of the points I, I want to make, though, is that, I mean, it's an experiment in part because, I mean, the government's kind of just guessing. I mean, it's a little bit frightening. The, the extent to which they've failed to articulate any sense of what the rationale is for the numbers that they're coming up with on immigration, or that, I mean, they haven't been, in, I think this is, the federal government has not been entirely persuasive that they've actually looked to see about what kinds of demands are going to be made on the housing market, on the healthcare system, you know, on the job market, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the, the way you should think about it is you're trying to scale up a system of cooperation and to do so as rapidly as possible to benefit as many people as possible. So what I propose that is we need to like start thinking more seriously about what the appropriate indices are to measure whether or not that scaling up is working well enough. So it, it's naive to think that people are going to arrive in Canada and just kind of like instantly become sort of Tim Hortons Canadians. There's been an enormous amount of research on this, which has been shown that, that you know, immigrants don't just instantly re-optimize all of their behaviors as soon as they arrive at, in a new country. It, and in part because a liberal society is one that allows people to preserve a lot of their, you know, sort of cultural and family practices, et cetera, et cetera. So there's also a, a complicated learning process about how people discover which forms of behavior are going to have to adapt and which forms of behavior are not going to have to adapt. Right? But it's a very, very long process of figuring out, you know, like, like, how do you act? How do you live in Canada? How do you enjoy living in Canada? What gets you in trouble? What doesn't get you in trouble? And stuff like that. And so we need to think more seriously about how successful that, that mechanism is. And so I propose a variety of, of, of sort of factors that we should be looking at to see whether or not we're actually succeeding in scaling up our system of institutions or whether we're starting to incur breakdown in those institutions. Right. So like, you know, for example, I mean, so even though it's a conservative talking point, the fact is, like, you should be looking at the crime rate. Right. Like crime is a, is a perfect example then of, of an institution which is starting to experience dissolution. Right. Where it's failing to generate the appropriate levels of cooperativeness. Right. So if you're getting like, you know, like, you know, large increases of crime sort of across the board or in particular communities. Right. Well, then that's good reason to worry about it. Right. So the fact that we haven't seen big spikes in crime is, is actually like an important indicator that things are going well. Um, but we still need to be keeping an eye on these things. And we need to be always thinking about, like, what are we doing? We're expanding the scale of an institution. So then the and that's hard to do. Like, when you bring in 50-year-olds and say, okay, now your life is going to be totally different, and you're going to have to act in a completely different way, right? That's a, that's a, you know, a wrenching transformation that people have to undergo. 
So we we should be thinking about whether that's going well or, or, or you know or poorly. That, that's a brilliant answer, Joseph. It reminds me of your previous thinking of a, a more expansive conception of how economists typically talk about efficiency. You know, that is to say, the optimal or most efficient immigration policy may not be merely about juicing GDP, but for accounting for these number of qualitative and quantitative uh, dimensions that uh, ultimately determine whether Canada is able to accommodate large-scale immigration without it resulting in social, economic and social consequences. So one of the reasons I think that Canada has done better on the immigration front than a lot of other countries in terms of, you know, not generating backlash and stuff like that is that the situation in Quebec is so unusual. The English Canada has learned a lot from what Quebec has learned about immigration. And so when you think about it objectively, I think the English Canadians are not nearly sympathetic enough to the concerns that are expressed by Quebecers about immigration rates, right? So like, you know, Fossil let go immediately, as soon as Trudeau announced his big immigration numbers, the Premier of Quebec basically said, forget about it, right? And, you know, people were like, oh my God, they're such racists in Quebec, right? But, but that's actually, I mean, you have to think about it from their perspective, right? That, you know, so people coming from all over the world are moving to North America. They, you know, they want to go and live in New York and the United States, but oh, well, they couldn't get in. So they go to Canada instead, right? So you wind up there in, in Canada and then all of a sudden, you're in this place called Montreal you've never heard of. And all of a sudden, they're telling you, oh, yeah, we don't want your kids to learn English. We want you to learn French, right? I mean, so a typical immigrant is going to look at that and say, why on earth would I move to North America and learn neither English nor Spanish, but rather I'm going to learn French. And I'm not even going to learn like standard French. I'm going to learn a dialect of French that gets like pretty persistently, you know, persecuted in France and outside of Quebec, right? Like, so what Quebec is trying to do is something incredibly difficult, which is that they themselves are a minority and they're trying to integrate immigrants into a minority culture rather than a majority culture. And they have a pretty good index of whether it's working well or not, which is language acquisition. So are people actually learning French, right? And so, I mean, they, so they've gone through a long learning process. I mean, so there's a, there's a book that I read that I wish I could remember the name of, but it was by, it was a former PQ politician. Uh, who was actually of Hungarian ancestry, and his family had immigrated to Quebec in the 60s, so before Bill 101 and the attempt to sort of get everyone to learn French. And so then it was, it was actually, the, the policy that Quebec had was actually kind of preposterous, which is that they had a Catholic school system that they basically excluded all immigrants from, from going to their school. So the, 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 he grew up in this Hungarian family in NDG, and he went to a high school where there was literally not one Quebecois student. And so... And in fact, one one year he has this little story about how like one Quebecois kid came to the school. So they all like everyone in the school referred to him as like the Quebecois, right? Because he was literally the only one in the school. So obviously, if that's the arrangement where the school is a hundred percent immigrants, right? So how are they going to learn French? I mean, so obviously they're not going to learn French because there's like literally nobody speaking French. So they've discovered that okay, well that was you know, ridiculous. So they kind of overnight switched to the opposite end, which is basically making everybody go to French school. But you can see how there has to be a critical mass, right? So, you know, it's absurd to think that anyone's going to integrate into Quebec society when the kids go to a school with not a single member of, of, of you know, Quebecois de Souche population at that school. But but what percentage is, is the, the correct percentage? Do you need 30%, 70%, 90%, right? There has to be something along those lines. So Quebec is, as, because they feel threatened, and, and because their language, I mean, legitimately so, right? The language is, in fact, threatened. 
the way they've handled immigration has always been had to be a lot more careful, but also has been explicit. And and there's been a more sort of informed discourse where people can articulate their concerns and then people can argue about it, right? And so, for example, designating French as an official language is something that is, in Quebec doesn't seem like a crazy thing to do. But then the flip side then, English Canada copies a lot of what Quebec does. So we then declare English an official language. And, and that actually goes some distance towards clarifying expectations, right? Now, of course, in the United States, like they don't do that. So if you were to declare English uh, an unofficial language, that's seen as kind of like an extreme right-wing backlash kind of politics, right? And in Canada, it isn't so much, in part because it's a matter of just mirroring what Quebec has done. I think the whole Quebec situation is like super fascinating. We, could, uh, we, we actually do learn a lot from it, although it doesn't necessarily percolate into the public discourse. But it's one of the reasons why we've met. So it's because Quebecers treat their own culture as threatened that they therefore have responded to immigration in a more in, in a more anxious but nevertheless intelligent way. And I, I don't think it's wrong to always you know treat your culture as being in principle threatened, right? I mean, if 80 million people came to Canada, that would threaten our culture. And so it's not the wrong way to think about it, right? So you don't want to be hysterical about it, but you nevertheless, you have to look at your culture and the system of cooperation that it generates as something that's a little bit fragile, right? That, that you, you want to preserve that as an accomplishment. Ton of insight there, Joseph. Um, you've been so generous with your time. I, I want to just put one more question to you, and I'll, I'll let you take it in any direction you want. But it's ever since we scheduled our, uh, this conversation, I, I, I was keen to put it to you. What do you think explains the growing interest on the intellectual right in what is sometimes described as post-liberalism? How much of it do you think is attributable to liberalism being boring? <laughs> I mean... I, I guess I, I guess I'm not entirely sure what what you're thinking of with post liberalism. You mean liberalism in like the American sense or in the global sense? Are you thinking of sort of like the the you know the worship of like Orban in Hungary and Putin and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. That's a sort of political manifestation. But I'm thinking of scholars like Patrick Deneen at the at the University of Notre Dame, a, a group of intellectuals associated with the, the new upstart journal Compact. Just this growing sense that North American liberalism and and pluralism lacks a sort of moral uh, and in some cases even theological foundation that is leading to a decline in virtue and um, moral living and and all the rest. Yeah, th that un unfortunately has the, the the primary effect is just to make me feel old. Because this is like the second iteration of this that I've seen in, in my lifetime, right? Uh, and it's the same thing with all of the sort of woke stuff and all those arguments. It's like my first reaction to that was like, oh my God, it's like the 1990s all over again. Like, I've already seen this movie. I've already seen how it ends. So similarly, I actually grew up in the heyday of what was called the liberalism communitarianism controversy. And so I studied with Charles Taylor at McGill, who was one of the most prominent communitarians. Uh, and that was back when John Rawls and was still alive. And so all these, and Ronald Dworkin, and all these great figures of 20th century liberalism. And so they had articulated this view, liberalism that said, oh, we're just going to have principles that are going to be completely neutral with respect to your concept of the good life. And uh, you can, you know, like have whatever religion, have whatever you want in your communities, but the state's going to be like neutral. And then there was this sort of communitarian backlash against it that said, no, we need to have much, much stronger communities with shared values, the center cannot hold, all that kind of stuff. So Charles Taylor had articulated a kind of Canadian version of that idea. 
But you had something similar being said by Michael Sandel, by Michael Walzer in the United States, and so. And um, so the, the so that that debate kind of uh, blew over. But in part, actually, another Canadian, Will Kimlicka, uh, at Queen's University, was you know extremely influential at kind of ending that debate. And one of the ways he did so was by by first of all showing that the liberal way of thinking about things uh, is that is the kind of you know desiccated, principle-based way of thinking about things is really the only way of making sense of the ambitions of something like the multiculturalism policy and also the forms of multinational accommodation that you get with, say, Quebecois, indigenous peoples, and so on. So Kim Lincoln provided this framework that kind of adapted liberalism to show how that it, it, it could provide a very sort of principled and intelligent way of managing all these conflicts of pluralism. So that you, and you could get the kind of concern for, for group difference that communitarianism had promised without abandoning a liberal framework. And, and then meanwhile, the sort of communitarian view really didn't have anything to offer when it came to managing these kinds of pluralistic conflicts. If anything, it recommended a kind of libertarianism, which is just, well, we, we you know, like it, when you encounter people, if, you've got, if you want to preserve your big, thick moral community where everybody shares similar values, then you really can't be letting in tons of immigrants and like, you know, free thinkers and stuff like that. So you really need to just like distance yourself from the people down the road. So it, that liberalism, communitarianism, debate kind of wound up resolving itself in part because you got the for formulation of a version of liberalism that was like really attractive and compelling. And so I find like when I, you know, listen to, to Dean and so on, I find it's just like a retread of like that same, that same argument. And I don't see them bringing a lot of like new resources to, to, to the table. And um, so, I mean, I, I think that the, the interest in sort of illiberal politics and in particular, sort of populist democracy that violates the rules of liberalism and using the power of the state to prosecute the culture war, right? So, and you could only do that by violating certain norms of liberalism. So that, that's new, right? And so that's something you see on the American right. You really don't see it in Canada yet, right? But, but you see it, like, say, with DeSantis in Florida, the idea that you're actually going to use state power to try to win the argument against, you know, like, you know, you know, rights for gays and lesbians or something like that, that that's a kind of imitation of illiberal populism that sort of, that, that, that's, a, that's not something that people were talking about in the 90s, right? But at the sort of conceptual and philosophical level, I don't see a lot that's new in the argument. It's not just a repeat of the old argument. So there's this kind of like persistent concern that liberalism fails to renew its own cultural foundations. Right? So the liberal societies consistently kind of erode the sort of thick community commitments that are required in order to socialize children to have them sufficiently well motivated to respect liberal norms. So there's this kind of self-cannibalism that takes place in liberal society. So I, I guess all I can observe is that like, that's something that people have been worrying about for my entire lifetime. So 50 years have passed, and it's like, theoretically still seems like a problem, but at the same time, 50 years have passed, and the catastrophe that was, that was predicted has yet to, yet to appear. So, you know. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, those are tremendous insights, similar to the insights that listeners and readers will find in the book, Cooperation and Social Justice. Uh, Joseph Heath, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. 
We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.